Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hi, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up. I'm joined with my co-host, Josh Keeling of Cadea Group. Today, we're talking to Ben Quila, the outgoing Power Planning Division Director at the Northwest Power and Conservation Council. And the council just wrapped up its 2021 Power Plan. Plan comes out every six years. It's a deep dive into uh, potential scenarios that are ahead for the Northwest power sector. There's really no other plan like it that's produced elsewhere in the country. This latest version dealt with a host of change that's coming, uh, changes becoming bigger and faster than anything we've seen before. There's a lot to dive into there. But first, Josh, how are you doing? I'm great, man. I'm good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not raining, so I'm happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's geek out for a little bit while Ben still has an excuse to talk to us. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, Ben, um, so you're on your way out the door and how's that feeling? I, I am, um, an amazing opportunity came up in Montreal, which is all the way across the country. And I'm currently dealing with how you pack up an entire house, sell it and move things very far and to a different country. Um, it's, it's a lot of different details to, to work through. I totally get it. I mean, I, I mean, potato champ is great, but, uh, uh you can't beat the poutine <laughs> up in uh, Canada. So I, uh, I totally understand. I'm sure it won't be hard at all to find poutine in Montreal, which is where you're headed. A couple of months ago, Ben, you announced that you're leaving the council to join Dunsky energy and climate advisors in June. So you're sticking around for a little bit. You're not just packing up and taking off in the middle of the night. There's certainly some things left to be done, but um, it's it's kind of helping Jen get established as the interim director right now and making sure that we're putting the council in a really good spot. I mean, I to be like just a small moment of plugging, the council has been a fantastic place to work. Um, it's a place that I think is really good for the Northwest and I want to see it continue to do really well. And I'm doing everything I can to... Um, help make sure that my exit is is well covered and, you know, helping make sure that the council continues to do the amazing work it, it does today and, and will continue to do that for a long time. And frankly, I'm hoping the council continues to do it because I'm planning on using their information as much as I can down the road, totally. in whatever work I do. You're also yeah. stealing as many office supplies as you can before you have yeah. to. It, it's all about post-it notes. I'm just <laughs> an entire container full of yeah. post-it notes going to Montreal. That's yeah. Sure. Yeah, and Charlie Grist, like memorabilia. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> um, French berets. It's deep Northwest oh. Power Industry Insider reference there from Josh. <laughs> yeah. So, well, hey, um, let's get started. There's a lot to talk yeah. about. The power plan, the those four dams in Idaho. Uh, Josh, where do you want to get started? I mean... First, I just want to say, like, at a high level, Ben, like, uh, almost like a little bit of an exit interview, like, what are you going to miss most about the council? And what are you absolutely happy to see go? Well, I'm not sure that I have anything that I'm absolutely happy to see go. I know that's kind of a political answer, but it is. um, (laughs) It's true. Like, there's a lot of things that are difficult at times, but I, I think that that difficulty leads to really good outcomes and it's good to work through it. I, the thing I, I really am going to miss is the number of people that we work with. I think one of the best yeah. things about coming to the council 
after I worked at BPA was you instantly have a connection to so many people throughout the region. You have so many conversations. You're able to walk in to meetings, whether it's a PNUC or whether it's a PPC, um, go visit utilities on site and really just have really good conversations with the people throughout the region. It's really hard at any other organization to have that sort of broad sense of what's going on and, and to make connections yeah. between investor-owned utilities and publics and all the organizations that kind of work and advocate um, on the electric sector for the Northwest. So yeah. I, I'm gonna miss that sort of being at the nexus of, of all these different sort of meetings and organizations and, and part of the conversation. Um, that's That's for sure the biggest thing I'm going to miss. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is a very unique position that the council has um, in the region, and and just I would say, you know, there aren't isn't really a comparable body uh, anywhere in the country. So it's it's it, it's got to have been a great experience. I, and I'm curious, you know, it's great time for you to leave. Sort of as the plan is wrapping up, what do you think are like the sort of big lessons out of the plan that you hope the region sort of takes uh, and moves forward with? I, you know, I think um, I, I don't know how to put it into a really quick kind of one sentence summary or anything like that. There was so much work throughout the power plan. Sure. Um, but I, I do think one of the biggest takeaways or, or maybe a sort of something that calls attention to something going on in the industry right now is just that there's so much change going on right now. We see the, yeah. the increase of solar penetration within California. We see all the legislation that has gone through. Um, to require clean as well as renewable energy for RPS or other legislative um, sort of priorities. We see a, a complete um, headwind to getting any new natural gas put into the system. And, and it's like all those pieces in isolation kind of make sense to people. But when you put together the entire puzzle, it really just shows this massive wave of change going on in the electric utility industry. And it's it's kind of just starting, it's there. You can already look at the ISO's website and see you know, Southern California having prices that diverge from the rest of the West because of a surplus of solar. Um, California exporting to the Northwest during the middle of the day, something that has happened apparently a lot in the last week. So it, it's like the, the early signs are there, but I think the power plan is saying, that they're just that, they're early signs, they're early indications, and that change is going to get bigger and and more rapid in the pace that it's coming on. And so hopefully um, this power plan, kind of, if I had to summarize it, I guess I would say it's just saying pay attention, things are going right. to go fast. Well, that's an interesting, uh, it's, yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a really interesting point. Um, you're seeing this come up with a lot of the integrated resource plans from some of the IOUs as well like this balance between these like long-term unsolved issues, right? Which is, you know, some of the bigger resource adequacy questions, seasonal storage, sort of long duration outages and resilience, um, transmission, everything. And then uh, some of these short-term like rapid change that you're talking about, you know, we have a lot that needs to happen in terms of just renewables deployment. The plan really pointed that out. It's like, gigawatts of renewables just coming out of the system super fast demand response you know electrification all these things that are happening pretty quickly how do you balance those you know when you're thinking about this because it's you know the plan has to consider both and that's that's got to be a really hard thing to grapple with yeah yeah i guess i i find it easier to balance them 
when I'm thinking of the region, kind of in isolation. The IRPs coming out here yeah. are not that radical. Um, they don't have such a high hill to climb. When you look at the rest of the West, when you have California that still has, you know, a 30% of its power coming from a natural gas fleet, and it's going to be 100% right. clean. When you have the desert Southwest that's starting to have similar sort of goals where you're seeing New Mexico or other places like that passing legislation saying they're moving away from natural gas, they're trying to clean their fleet, you see a much more radical shift. They don't have the advantage of the hydro system. They don't have the, the sort of inbuilt sort of approach the Northwest has had to how it's built out its system. We are not as dependent on thermals as, as the rest of the West and certainly not as much as the East. And right. so because of that advantage, it doesn't look like it's a huge shift here, but we are interconnected to all the people who have to make these changes. And I, I think that was kind of one of the other big findings out of the plan is if you take them at their word, there's going to be really large shifts in how they generate electricity and how they use electricity. And that's going to have a huge impact on us because we're part of the same system. We, we work in markets, whether they're in California or elsewhere, you know, the utilities in the Northwest are trading energy and, and kind of interacting with those utilities. And if there's a lot of surplus built, because that seems to be the strategy that people are, are going towards at the moment, then that creates a very big wave in the markets that changes the dynamics in the grid. Yeah, now, I mean, that that's absolutely true. I think it also, it, it is interesting because you, you see folks sort of focus really deeply on one point of that or the other, right? Like we see some folks who really want to focus on, are we going to develop SMR or are we going to develop you know, hydrogen or what are, what are the long-term solutions? We need to be working on that right now. Um, or we should be pumping the brakes on some of this deployment. Whereas other folks are sort of like, we need to be scaling more rapidly. And you have to sort of balance those two as an organization. It's got to be very tricky. I, I think you, I think the power plan has done a really good job of sort of talking about, I, I can't remember the language you guys use exactly sort of like, but scenario planning or sort of like possible futures, um, but uh, but can you talk a little bit about just sort of like how you control that narrative or sort of manage that narrative across different stakeholder groups? Yeah, I will. So I guess, you know, I think we're kind of fighting against our own history here a little bit because in the past, yeah. the power plan mm. has been seen as a very robust solution. It's like there's many different futures out there, but very similar strategies get you to a good place for those future outcomes. And this power plan isn't that. Um, there's many things where we said, if the if you see heavy electrification, then the strategy that we're putting forward in the power plan is going to fall short and it needs to be adjusted. And I, I think that that's, it, it's hard for people because in the past, you know, it was a pretty straightforward do energy efficiency, pursue demand response, you know, if, if you go beyond those resources, then, then you might need to add in something like a gas plant or something like that. I mean, in the seventh plan, it was a pretty straightforward strategy. Um, and, you know, do, do renewables, but do them up to the RPS requirement. And the, the 2021 plan is just completely different. It says, <laughs> do, do renewables, you know, based on, on what you think the future is going to be, the amount of renewables that it saw as kind of optimal in our models were, was a very different amount. And there was yeah. no really robust outcome there. Uh, you, we kind of said, you know, at least this much needs to happen. And we we put that in the resource strategy, to be clear. We didn't say build exactly this amount of renewables. We said at least this much. 
Right. Um, but realistically, <laughs> you see a future where we have heavy electrification in buildings or in transportation, you need to have a lot more. Um, and that's going to be, you know, even if you think of just the Northwest in isolation, having to deal with that, you need a lot more. But when you add that on top of all the other changes that are going to have to be happening throughout the West, um, it, it's just a complete transformation of the electric sector. And to, uh, it, to be able to better model that future, uh, you guys really revamped almost, I mean, kind of rebuilt in some to some degree from the ground up. Yeah, the main model that you guys use and various other models that factor into it, uh, that produced some really surprising results. But so the remodel was trying to take into account the changing dynamics and to give uh, a more well, yeah, dynamic view of the future, just considering there's so many variables that are uh, affecting uh, the the industry, how it operates, and their they're changing rapidly. And so, I mean, you got some controversial results, uh, but you feel confident about them. I, are you concerned about buy-in in the, uh, to your point about previous plans being kind of having uh, a broader support, are you concerned at all about buy-in to the power plan, this radically different future that uh, is presented in the 2021 power plan? Yeah, I, I am concerned about buy-in to the plan. Um, I, I think that the biggest concern I have is that people will will think because we redid the model is because we're kind of going down this really sort of ambitious path of trying to do more and, and understand more through the models that, that we didn't capture everything that people were expecting or, or that they'll, they'll use that as a way to not worry about the problems that we're raising in the power plant, um, thinking that we messed up or that the models didn't quite capture the dynamics right. And, you know, I've had now a pretty long career in the, the electric sector. I've dealt with a lot of models. I'm sure Josh has dealt with a lot of models too. And the truth is no models are ever right. Um, I, I always love to use the quote from a statistician that um, box, I believe it was, who's, that says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And, you know, the, the thing that I think was really important that we went down the path on is that we know the question has gotten way more complicated than the previous generation of models are able to deal with. Um, you weren't able to really get the dynamics of the hydro system, along with this sort of penetration of renewables coming out from outside of our region, as well as inside of our region, into a good place with the previous generation of models. So we had to go at, at redeveloping it and doing it in a way that allowed it to, to deal with that complexity. Um, and so I, I guess I feel like we did a really good job of getting a model that is you know, completely based on cloud computing, a completely basically next generation model up and working for this power plant. I don't want to say that there's never an opportunity to improve it. Um, in fact, I think there are many opportunities to improve on the modeling side. Most of those opportunities are about the inputs to the model, not about the structure of it, right? It's about mm -hmm. us going dam by dam and talking to people and saying, this is the right amount of ramping that you can do with this. These are the sort of constraints on this project. And just kind of getting the fidelity that is needed for kind of the actual structure to match. 
And so I think a lot of people have have seen us continuing to work and continuing to try to do better in this model. And because it's a new model, you know, the concern is that because you're still making changes, so there's still improvement and there's still new things and it's not ready yet. But but every model I've ever worked in, we are always making changes. We are always improving. And I think if you step back from the results that came out of the redevelop genesis and you just look at the landscape and you you as an analyst put yourself into the middle of it, that you see things are going to change. Things are going to have really big impacts. And so this model might provide one vision of what that change means. What, I, what I'm confident in, very strongly confident in, is that the things are going to change. Things are not going to be the same way they were in the past. And so if this model gives you a vision that is very different than the past, that's probably a good thing. Is it a perfect vision? Probably not. It, it's going to take us more time to continue working on it and to continue refining it. But if your your criticism of, of the model is that, you know, it doesn't look like previous models or it doesn't look like what we've seen in the region in the past, I, I think that's actually a really good selling point for it. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I think that's probably right. I, I think it seems like we, as an industry are struggling with that a bit in terms of the increased complexity of the problem space and the amount of questions we want our models to answer. Do you see, I mean, both with, with like future plans and just more broadly in the industry, do you see a move towards making the like making the modeling process bigger or breaking the model modeling process up into smaller chunks that are sort of handled separately well so i i have my personal biases on this so (laughs) i I would say i i think um you can't make a model that captures everything so so any effort to try to put everything into one big universal model is destined to have become a mess At, at the same time i think the complexity of what we've done in models, we've used a lot of approximations, we use a lot of sort of simplification, and the, those simplifications made sense in the past based on the system that we were operating, but they don't in the future. And so we kind of are carrying forward those approximations and simplifications and, and not necessarily thinking about, okay, well, what does the future grid look like and what are the right sort of, where is it right to have fidelity and where is it okay to have an approximation? And it might change because the technology changes and the underlying grid changes. And so I think we need to be really thoughtful about that. But but that being said, I, I think you know the future of modeling is, is bigger models and more complex models. It's just, if you look at where we are as an industry, we're behind many other industries that are using massive amounts of computing power that are, are doing everything in the cloud that have AI models or machine learning models that are used to figure out, you know, what the next movie recommendation is going to be for you. <laughs> but we can't have yeah. that same complexity or intensity brought to something that is, you know, as important as keeping electricity connected and on through a massive technological transformation. I, you know, I honestly think our industry needs to catch up. That's an totally interesting good. idea about um, if you could, uh, it, to your comment about um, the next you know, movie recommendation, if it's possible to develop like algorithms to give us some insight into where the likely like renewable developments are going to come, the which are the most likely, uh, you know. but given that we're going into such a radically different future uh, yet, do you, and 
we need to be get every ounce of efficiency uh, out of the system as we can, as we've got to build out huge amounts of generation and transmission. Um, do you think the modeling that we have to, you know, that go into IRPs and, and the planning that leads to uh, actual, you know, that forms the basis of investing in actual physical uh, you know, structures, steel on the ground, wind, wind turbines, solar, et cetera, um, the models that we have, uh, they're antiquated. How quickly do you think we can adapt them to so that they're not kind of holding us back uh, in you know, the individual utility planning uh, that lead to these investments? Or is that not a concern? Am I making more of it than it is? I, I, it is a concern. Um, you know, I think we've we've done our best to adapt models and and there's some transitional time here. Um, so, you know, I think of, to try to put it in, in kind of simple, for uh, terms that that really what you're doing with a lot of the sort of dispatch models is a fuel swap. You're looking for a more efficient gas plant um, to replace out a less efficient gas plant um, so that you can kind of make energy with the more efficient plant and, and then be able to back off on the less efficient plant. And that's what markets are supposed to do, right? Make, make sort of transactions that help you facilitate something like that. When you get into markets that don't have fuel, um, our, our current energy markets get a little bit difficult to um, conceptualize. And, you know, to me, we're not in a market that doesn't have gas plants yet. That's still a big part of the Western market. There's still going yeah. to be coal plants operating. So all those dynamics still are there and still are part of the market. And then on top of that, you have things like the renewable penetration growing and times, you know, in the middle of the day, where you might have a solar flood going on throughout the entire grid and, and really everything backed off to minimum generation and suddenly fuel constraints are no longer setting this sort of price of energy. And so for our current system, you've got to have both. You, you still need to understand dispatch based on fuel price. You still, and you also need to understand how renewables are impacting when that dispatch is actually a factor. Um, you know, in the future, if you go to 100% clean, if you start having more storage, there's there's things that could really change sort of the fundamental approach to how we look at the dispatch of the electric system. And in those futures, things have to change, but you can't go too fast, right? You can't make that change today and resolve it in models because today is not there yet. And so how you how you blend those systems together as you're going, because it's not it's not a black and white, it's not a sudden change. It is, it's something that is going from one state to another slowly and kind of in a blended manner to a transition to a new system. And there's some point in there where the sort of the emphasis that we've put on fuel, the emphasis we put on thermal operations becomes less and less important. And then kind of, as I said, with the sort of previous modeling conversation, you're able to make more approximations on that level because it's less of a factor in the grid. But that's not today. That's somewhere in the future. Well, you, it, it, it raises a, a big issue that, that it near and dear to my own heart, which is just how do you start integrating some of the distribution level or even like transmission level, just uh, locational factors and just how those resources where those resources are, how they're constrained, 
how they're operating, you know, based on local conditions, which can be a, you know, due to a number of factors, whether it's wires constraints or the retail business model of the utility or aggregator that's serving them. I I'm curious, you know, as locational factors or distribution level factors become more important, do you see like the plan integrating that more or like actually starting to model some of that stuff? Because the plan right now is pretty high level when it comes to locational factors. Um, but it seems like, you know, both based on policy and a number of other factors that that's going to be more important. Well, and just if I could uh, add, I mean, like in Idaho, pa- Idaho Power's recent um, integrated resource plan, they took into account like locational factors for uh, battery adding uh, storage. And the that led to, in part, I mean, that played a role in their plan foresees like 800 megawatts of uh, batteries, buying those in the next uh, you know, 10 years. I forget the exact right. numbers, but it's like mind boggling. So, I mean, it's not just wires, but um, yeah, it, that granularity. Yeah. Like Josh said, does it, is it high? Is the plan, the power plan high level that it doesn't matter? Or, I mean, that made a huge difference though for Idaho power. So yeah, that, yeah, I you know, uh, I think vocation matters. Um, I don't think anyone who who looks at the electric sector, the power system, the distribution system, or the transmission system can say that it you know location doesn't play a big role in how you put a system together. Um, and and you know, again, I think this is kind of one of those areas where in the past we've been able to put that down to some fairly big pockets. Yeah and say that this is where you might get some extra value because of the way the transmission system operates. And and this is a particularly hard place to get resources in or to get transmission to be able to move power to. Um, That being said, yeah, as as you change the way the system operates, I think location becomes more and more important. And so uh, again, I think it's a spectrum. You're going from a, a world where you know, we were able to do a lot of sort of big central generation solutions, and those tended to get the economy of scale. And you saw those come in as the kind of preferred approach. And and even when you got down to something like solar, you know, big centralized utility scale solar usually had an economy of scale that made a lot more sense than a rooftop solar, right, on a distribution system. That still is a factor, right? It's still something yeah. that you keep track of, but there might be some, some opportunities or some local value that makes it, you know, be not, not one or the other, um, because it's a false dichotomy. It's a false comparison, right? It becomes a sort of supplemental, like for other purposes, for not just strictly generating power, but for locational value, makes sense to do distribution services here. It makes sense to put a, 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 you know, a battery in this substation. Um, things like that, I think are going to naturally become more and more predominant. And I, you know, the the challenge that the council has always had is we're not making plans for individual utilities. And what makes sense, especially on a distribution system, is an individual utility question, right? But even on the transmission system, you know, when you're looking at the broader sort of setup, a, a, a IOU especially is going to need to go to a regulatory structure and say, this is a, a useful asset for me for my purposes, for what I need, you know, they don't need to make a argument about the general utility to the entire grid. 
And so it, it's it's hard to. Sure. But it's hard to disentangle those, though, right? Because, you know, if if individual utilities or municipalities or states are adopting electrification policies or, you know, you just run into transmission constraints at some point, we're just going to have load pockets where there's no way there's no more pipes to get that that juice into that area. I because I, I I don't know about like sometimes like the value stacking converse, locational value conversation feels like, oh, we're just trying to find more warm, fuzzy feelings to justify some investments. I'm less sympathetic to that. I'm more, I think it's just from a system perspective, there are some core like assumptions that need to factor in location. Because if a bunch of electric heating suddenly appears in a specific part of the grid, that affects everybody's reliability potentially. Um, you know, if if PSE service territory goes down, we're all going to feel it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, I think especially as you see batteries built out, um, you know, when you're yeah. talking about utility scale wind farms or utility scale solar, like I, I do think you're going to have some narrow cases where it makes sense to look on the distribution system to do rooftop to kind of have those in a local area. Um, probably for congestion reasons um, or, or things along those lines. But when you start talking about batteries, there's no no need to go out and find a big empty field in the middle of you know Eastern Oregon or Eastern right. Washington to put a bunch of batteries in one place. You can spread them throughout the grid. You can put them in substations. You can locate them in a lot of different places. You might gain some you know economy of scale or efficiency in being able to go replace you know and kind of do maintenance on batteries if they're closer together but but i don't think it has the same sort of challenges you see on the renewable side um now right now the biggest sort of uh benefit to uh having a sort of battery system co-located with solar um is that you've got extra surplus energy that is not going to make it out past the inverter you're able to charge those batteries so you know the the economics of the current battery installations might not match those sort of locational values or the future economics of storage um i do see that's that's kind of the first mover i think you yeah. when you start seeing storage really start to be located in a lot of different areas that's that's showing you that you're really getting into load growth you're getting into a grid that, that has some real constraints and that it's becoming part of kind of operating the transmission system and moving power is that you're finding ways to kind of locate storage intelligently. Yeah, I mean, I think also just like, I mean, even if the plan's not acquiring those resources and saying like, these are the, you need to go get more solar, or you need to go get more storage, just factoring in what's going to happen based on like distribution system plans or IRPs that are coming out from the utilities Having those sort of locational baseline conditions, I think, will probably be an important consideration more as you get into some of these thornier issues. Well, it, and, you know, it, I have to ask, though, I mean, all the conversations we're having, right, or this conversation that we're having right now is premised on the idea that the uh, supply chain can keep up with all of the build out. And I mean, we're seeing supply chain issues with batteries and yeah, there's, I have to think that there's going to, well, and potentially with um, solar, with Commerce, Department of Commerce now looking into potentially putting tariffs on solar uh, equipment imports from parts of East Asia. I, I mean, there's going to be some serious supply chain issues. You know, can we build wind turbines and solar and 
not, you know, fast enough to keep up with uh, the amount that we need to expand, not to mention transmission and distribution lines. Yeah. So uh, for all the modeling you, you guys did at um, the council, does it matter <laughs> if, <laughs> if the supply chain <laughs> isn't there? Does it just become, are you concerned that this just becomes uh, a, a, you know, a intellectual exercise and we're just, you know, trying to keep up it barely? Um, yeah. So I, I guess to me, I think it does matter. Um, I, not because supply chain isn't an issue. I mean, it is. Um, I, I think that you kind of end up, supply chain is a timing issue, right? It, given an infinite amount of time, you can do many, many different things, right? And if you're going to a, a very short time frame and you're trying to get a lot done, it becomes a bigger constraint. And so to me, if you look at the plan and you say, okay, there's no way this much can get built. And I mean, when you look at the entire West, it, it is a big question. Can we actually build the amount of resources it will take to meet all the policies that are out there and pass by 2045 or 2050? Um, if the answer in your head is no, this is a supply chain thing, it's not going to work, that doesn't mean that you're not going to that same spot. It just means that it's going to take you an extra 10 years or an extra five years to get there. And I guess to me, that that's kind of why you think of the power plan in a kind of broad strategy sense. You don't want to take it year by year or down to a specific megawatt amount. Um, if people are going in that direction and they can't retire things as quickly, or if more new load comes on and you need to keep resources around longer, as and in addition to adding resources, you know, I think that there's many paths for utilities to make it to that place. You know, the biggest concern, of course, and, and the thing that would be very hard to catch is if you start to see really, really aggressive electrification and loads just grow at a pace that you can't keep up with in constructing resources. Um, and I, I think we're not there at the moment. Um, I, I guess it's just a question of if that happens and you have supply chain issues, how do you manage it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose we have to get there one day regardless, right? Because we're transforming the industry and uh, the, the, yeah, the future is about uh, non-fossil fuel uh, generation and yeah, so it might take a little bit longer, but we have to get there. So actually, first I have to ask the uh, the line that you quoted earlier about all models are wrong, but some are useful. I think it was right. Yeah. Okay. Do you have that as a tattoo? Because if anybody <laughs> did, it would be Ben Quilla. Ben and I are going to go get matching ones. Actually. Yeah, you should. You should. We're both down in Portland. That'd be dope, man. I'm in. I'm in. That's, that's, I, I was in a, a, a DSP meeting uh, recently. We were presenting on some modeling. Wait, what Somebody, is DSP? The, oh, sorry. Distribution system planning. Thank you. And one of the stakeholder was like, well, that, that result's not right. And I was like, you're right. It's not. It's totally wrong. <laughs> Same like, thing with every other result that we're showing you. Wrong, but, but it's a decent guess. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's yeah. how I feel like that's how I feel about my theology. I'm probably <laughs> wrong, but I'm trying to get as close as I can. Um because you know, finite Speaking being of- trying to wrap my head around the infinite, <laughs> infinite divinity of anyways. I don't I, I'm sorry, I'm, if 
That was this was just a trick. I'm going to evangelize now. Yeah, that, that <laughs> took a wild turn. I'm all for it. Solid. Um, so wait, uh, okay, yeah, we've got to. We, speaking we don't of want... things that that folks want to argue about being wrong yes. about. Um, yes, there's the transition. Boom. Yeah, let's talk about Snake River. Yeah. Uh, so Ben, what's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> so I. I I think look, we've been working it, on it. We're we're gonna post your home address for yeah. for all the <laughs> advocates. It actually has who an expiration it. date at this point. So, <laughs> yeah, um, perfect. Yeah. So you know, I, I look. I think when we started out, one, we've only been asked to say what would it take, right? Yes. Not, right. I've, I've not been asked to say you know go after and start a study and try to start you know showing people results and and kind of going through that process. It's just been a sort of what does it take to do a really good comprehensive. Um, look at what would happen if you didn't have the power system services from those projects anymore. And well, before we get too much deeper in this, I just want to set this up quickly for listeners who are not okay. deep uh, in the so <laughs> Lower Snake River dams, four dams that are part of the federal power hydropower system in the Northwest. They're on the Lower Snake River in Idaho. Lots of controversy about whether they stay, go, uh, you know, fish mitigation. Salmon, maybe you've heard they're not doing well. Uh, and they, but the dams provide a lot of uses too power generation, recreation, transportation, irrigation, et cetera. Uh, so, Northwest Power and Conservation Council, the council members asked you guys to consider doing a, to come out with a scope of a study of a, the first comprehensive analysis of what these dams contribute to the power system writ large and what it would take to replace them. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. actually I, I kind of um, want to make sure that we're, we're getting this in a um, sort of good context as well. So we were asked to say, what would it take? We had the power plan. We had many comments come up um, throughout the power plan saying that the council should study these particular projects and, and have some sort of opinion or some sort of position or something that was related to how they impact the system and what would happen were they were the services from them unavailable. We looking at what the, the Power Act, and, and this is probably getting too deep into kind of council structure, but looking at the Power Act, looking at the way that we kind of conceptualize what we're supposed to be doing evaluating whether existing plants um, should or should not be removed is, is not really the purpose of what, what we see a power plant doing. We, we often are interested in the risk of if a plant becomes unavailable or if some sort of strategy goes into place that really changes the dynamics. Um, we did a, a whole study on early coal retirement. What happens if throughout the entire West, all the coal plants start shutting down and they shut down earlier? You know, that, that's a risk that we're looking at and wanting to assess. It's not a policy. It's not, not advocating for a particular policy. And so I think there's a lot of nuance there. Um, and, and we could fill up an entire hour talking about, you know, the Power Act and what it was intended to do and, and how you can look at that through the modern system. But overall, Sign me up. Sign me yeah, up. Yet, yeah, I, it sounds yeah. really fun. I'm sure that, that would get lots of you on the podcast. Totally. Broad um, audience. Yeah. <laughs> So, but either way, we, we had this kind of question about what would it take um, if we, if the council was going to pursue a study of lower snakes, what would it take, you know, how much kind of 
how would we change the approach to how we're like working on the models, how we're updating things, what, what would be the pieces of information we need to go out and get, who would we have to talk to? And so we, we have done a lot of work to go back and say, this is what it would take to make this sort of study in, in a way that makes sense for the council, right? That we bring people together, that we have great amounts of detail, that we do it in a very open format and let everybody see, you know, down to all the weeds and, and really get into the mix there. Um, and so that, that's kind of what we've been asked to deliver. In that scope, though, I, I think I, I say two things that I, I like to put as bookends on this entire analysis and, and something that kind of tells you my perspective on these projects. The first is that they are replaceable. We have power systems throughout the entire world that run without having these four projects in that. You know, there's many different ways to run power systems that if you are not talking about the cost of them, if you're not talking about the cost of replacement, just is it possible to replace them? My feeling is from everything that I've ever interacted with, the answer is just yes, you can replace these projects. It's it's possible to have a system that is just as adequate or more adequate given the investment needed. Um, you're not saying projects uh, included. You're not saying that that's it's a good idea or not a good idea to replace them. You're just saying, look, theoretically it, or realistically, it is possible. Yeah, if money's not is money's not a concern, you can replace the projects and get the system to a place where it's as adequate or more adequate. So that, the, I, that is a hilarious caveat, uh, by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like, but it, it is all these results are wrong, yeah. but some are useful. So, what is There's the useful so result that you expect? Wrong on this, and so I, I understand that this is, sounds like a ridiculous bookend, but it no, 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 I love it. No, it's important. important thing to point out that yeah, people absolutely. often will say, you know, because of some services, whether it's reserves, whether it's you know, sort of flexibility, right. ability to respond right. in extreme temperatures, you know, all the different things that these projects are currently used for, you know, they'll kind of posit implicitly that it's not possible to run the system without them. And, and I think it's really important to put on the table straightforward, like, no, it, it is, you know, you have to do something to replace that resource to make sure that the system is, is as adequate or more adequate. And that once you do that, you know, you can run the system without having the power output from those projects. But I think the other side of the argument that people often try to kind of imply is that, that these projects don't provide enough value to the system to even be noticeable where they removed. And I think that just flies completely counter to the entire theory of power systems. That if you remove a generator from a power system in isolation, doing nothing else, it becomes less adequate. And mm -hmm. you, you increase the likelihood that you have a loss of load, you know, whether that's something that is controlled or whether it's something that is like a, a power outage that that is made on the bulk electric grid because the circumstances lead you there um it's just you're increasing the likelihood of it and there's no way to take any plant i mean in the entire system out and not have some impact it, it i mean in theory it could be zero if you just built a plant into a system that absolutely didn't ever need it but reasonably it would still be a contingency resource <laughs> yeah yeah no so 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 you can replace them but you can't remove them without having an impact on adequacy and that's kind of 
you know, so then the question becomes, if you're going to study them, you know, what does replacement look like and what's the cost? And, and I think that's what we tried to scope out and, and kind of say, if you want to go down this path, and, and there's been previous studies on, on replacement and what it looks like, um, but I, I think it's important to look at a, a wide variety of futures. We don't know what's going to happen in 2050. So if you can peg exactly what's going to happen between now and 2050, I could give you an exact you know, sort of price for what it would take to replace the services provided and get back to the same level of you know, reliability. Um, but if you don't know for sure what's going to happen, then you might go into some futures where these things are more dependent upon, and you might go into some futures where they're less dependent upon. And what, what is the texture of those futures? What makes it up? That's the interesting piece. And, and I think that's what we tried to scope, is that this is, this is where the question really is. It's not if you could come up with a perfect forecast, you know, what would it take? Because that's pretty easy to answer. And I, I think that there's other people who could you know, put together something like that. And, and if you're going to pretend your forecast is perfect, you know, that's kind of a single deterministic study of, of replacement, then that, that will give you a, a single answer. Um, but our, our thing with power plans, the, the council's general approach is the future is uncertain. You can't just count on every answer being, you know, the expected value, the middle of, of a forecast. Yes. And so that, that's why we tried to scope out something that said, there is uncertainty and, and say, this is what it would take. Um, that being said, there's a lot of other things going on. There's a lot of other priorities the council has. And, you know, they asked us what it would take, but they didn't tell us to go out and start doing that study. And so yeah. I, I think that they need to balance the priorities that are in front of them and make a decision on whether the council wants to pursue this or does not. And that's a conversation at the council level. At, at the staff level, frankly, we are trying to make sure that we tell them what the work would be, what it would, what the implications would be for other work that is ongoing, and and making sure that they're fully aware of all of that. So, yeah. well, what we so, did our scope. Yeah. yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a big decision for the council to make. This is something that uh, the White House has been having conversations around the region with folks about the future of these dams, and that is drawing the attention of some the Republican. Uh, members of the Northwest Congressional Delegation, uh, there's a big spotlight falling on these dams. And it really feels like this, these issues that have kind of been very important to a lot of people in the region, but kind of below the radar for the, the general public are, feels like this, these dams are about to really, the future of the dams uh, is about to really step onto the main stage. Um, for better or for worse. Well, ben, thank you so much for taking time uh, away from packing and stealing post-it notes from the Northwest Power Conservation Council to <laughs> sit down with Josh and, and me and talk about uh, how all your answers are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> I, I feel like me. I'm, I'm going to start uh, telling, anytime my wife asks me a question, I'm going to be like, look, Good luck. My answers luck. are wrong, but might be useful. Um, yeah. So, and yeah, let me know when you guys have gotten those tattoos. Uh, for sure. Yeah. So, so there's three of us in for it then? <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't say when you're going. Let yeah. me know no, no, that you've that done them. I, f I feel like we could rope John Ellis into it too. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah. 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 
Um, now I'll awesome. be really impressed if you get Masood or like, uh, yeah. Um, Jillian, yeah. Jen, Jen. Jen? Yeah. We'll have to yeah. see. For sure. How many people um, we can recruit over to it before Josh and I, you know, start figuring out where we're going to get the ink done in Portland. Oh, yep. I got, it's going to be great guys. You're right. Um, Ben, uh, this was awesome talking. You, you're, you'll be greatly missed. Don't be straight. Yeah. Here. Indeed. Yeah, no, I'll I'll be around. I'm sure uh, my my scope is increasing a bit more, so I need to worry sure. about things in the east and in Canada. Um, and that's totally. really exciting. Going to be a lot of new information for me, but I, I suspect you'll still see me around the west on occasion. Well, awesome. hopefully, and yeah, uh, if I'm ever in Montreal, I'll I'll give you a call. Absolutely, anytime. <laughs> um, and Josh, same. Like, if you find yourself in Montreal, let me know. Absolutely, we'll get poutine. It'll be great. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the News Data Energy West podcast. And as always, you can find us online at newsdata.com and on Twitter at CU News Data. That's the letter C and U News Data. Uh, so thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow.